About a week ago, Friday, December 10th, you know that deadly tornadoes tore through several of our states, causing most of the devastation in the state of Kentucky. And the last I looked, uh, the death toll had risen to nearly 80 in that state alone. And I can imagine that today, about a week later, victims of the tornadoes of Kentucky are wondering where to go and what to do. Christmas presents that have been secretly stored up in a closet somewhere for Christmas Day are strewn about the neighborhood under rubble and wreckage. And people who are probably planning to host family members for Christmas are now wondering where they will have a home. While the Christmas season heightens our joy and our anticipation in a lot of ways, it also deepens our sense of loss and longing in other ways. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at and discussing this idea of exile, One writer defines exile this way. It's the experience of pain and suffering that results from the knowledge that there is a home where one belongs, and yet for the present, one is unable to return there. And if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that that's the sense we've been getting. A couple of weeks ago, we saw from Genesis 3 that God drove the man and the woman out of the garden. And ever since then, sinful humanity has been away from the glorious and beautiful presence of God. Last week in Genesis 11 and 12, we saw that humanity makes an effort to try to to fix our own problem, to be our own gods, to make ourselves better, to lift ourselves up. And yet nothing we do can get us back to where we should be. God must bring about a rescue plan for exiled humanity. And so if if you are familiar with the Bible's story, you know that God chose one man named Abram or Abraham and promised him that through his family, God would bless the whole world and bring his people back to himself. But even Abraham experienced a little taste of exile for A famine arose in the land and he had to leave the area that God promised him and go down into Egypt. And while he was there, God afflicted Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, and brought Abram out of Egypt, delivered him in a sense, and made him richer than he was before he went down into that country. Two generations later, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and all of his family go down into Egypt again because of another famine. Their family stays there and grows and multiplies until they become a nation, the nation of Israel. And in time, Pharaoh and his nation of Egypt oppress and enslave the Israelites. After hundreds of years, God comes and delivers his people out of Egypt, afflicting Pharaoh once again and bringing his people out through the 10 plagues and across the Red Sea. But it's been said that while God brought Israel out of Egypt, Egypt was still in Israel. And so even though the people of God came out of a foreign land, their hearts were still not what God wanted them to be. Israel continued to turn away from from God and to pursue pagan gods and pursue idolatry. And so God raised up a series of messengers over time called prophets. And these men came with messages of warning and of hope. Warning that God was going to bring judgment on Israel for their sin, but also hope that God would rescue them from their sin and make a new creation One of those prophets, Isaiah, is one that we come to today. And during his lifetime, 
The nation of Israel actually went into exile again, this time because of their sin. God caused a foreign power, the kingdom of Assyria to come in and take them captive into a foreign land. And so here, once again, the people of God are sitting in a foreign place in sin and sorrow and sadness, wondering how they can get back, back to their land and back to God. And in his book, Isaiah addresses this question of how God will get his people home, not merely to the promised land, but into God's presence forever. And Isaiah reveals that there is a much deeper problem for Israel than merely that they're in the wrong place. The problem goes much deeper than that. And so the problem of Israel is also the problem of all humanity. It's our problem today. We need God to get us home. And so we turn to Isaiah chapter 52, and this is our text for this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles in the rack in front of you, it's page 613, or you can look on the screen above. Isaiah 52 Verse 13, this is the word of God. God says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, We are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death 
and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is God's word for us. Into our upside-down world, God brings an upside-down plan. A solution to our problem, which at first glance seems like no solution at all. So we begin this morning by seeing that God brings his people out of sin and sadness by a better servant. By a better servant. Now, when you say something is better, you are implying that the thing before it was deficient somehow. It didn't measure up didn't do the job. You may have heard or seen, uh, heard about or seen some of the memes. Uh, you had one job, and I was looking at those, some of those this week. Uh, there's a box which says, printed on it, made in China, and right above it is an American flag. Okay, you had one job. Get it right on the print. Uh, another one, a yellow road sign. One of those that warns you a curve is coming or something like that. But on the yellow road sign, it says, please slow drively. Take a minute. Please slow drively. You had one job. Print it right. Uh, another one, there's a medal. Somebody's holding a medal like you receive for a contest. First place, second place, third place. On the medal, it has a big number three and then ST. Congratulations, you've won thirst. Like you had one job, get it right. In Isaiah 40 through 55, Isaiah presents to us a series of passages which have been called servant songs. And in these, we see a servant that God chose and then a better servant. A servant who didn't do their job and a servant who would perfectly fulfill that job. So what we're going to do is we're going to skip across a few of these servant songs in order to set up our passage for this morning. So turn with me to Isaiah 41, probably just a few pages back from where you are. Isaiah chapter 41. And we'll read a few verses here, verses 8 through 10. Isaiah 41, verses 8 through 10. God says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah here gives us the identity of the servant that God called to fulfill a mission. The identity of this servant is the nation of Israel. God chose the offspring of Abraham, the family of Abraham, to be his special people. And he called them. He set his love upon them. And he gave them a particular job. And what was that job? Look over at Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you, my servant, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness, 
I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So God chooses his servant Israel, and then he calls them to be a light to the nations, to spread his justice in the world, to show his character, to reflect him to the nations around them, and even to bring the lost and broken and dead to himself. Does Israel accomplish that job? Do they carry out their mission? Well, look at what happens later in Isaiah 42. Jump down to verse 18 in that same chapter. Isaiah 42, 18. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord? against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey. So he poured upon him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Well, here's a picture of a servant who's blind when he's supposed to be a light to others. Here's a picture of a servant who's deaf. He doesn't even hear God's words to him, let alone be able to proclaim God's message to others. Here's a servant that is plundered and looted and trapped and sent into exile. So how can this servant rescue anyone else? The nation of Israel has failed in their job. God's servant his chosen one did not accomplish the mission that he chose her for. And why is that? Because Israel's problem went deeper, as we said earlier, than just being in the wrong place. The nation of Israel's problem is our problem, a heart problem, a problem that goes against the God who calls us and who loves us. And so as a result... God chooses another servant, a better servant. Turn to Isaiah 49. Isaiah chapter 49, we'll read several verses here, beginning with verse 1. God says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me. From the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. So this is actually someone distinct from God. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he, the Lord, said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet, surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations. 
that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So here, Isaiah gives us a glimpse of a servant who is named Israel and yet is an individual distinct from the nation of Israel. In verse 3, he is called my God's servant Israel. And then in verse 5, he is the one who is to bring Jacob and Israel back to God. So here's a new servant. Israel, yet not national Israel. And Isaiah tells us what this servant's mission is. In verse 5, as I just mentioned, he is to gather wayward Israel back to God. But God says that's too light of a thing. God's going to show his power even greater than that. And so he says that this servant, this individual, will also be a light to the nations so that God's salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. And so this servant will be the one who perfectly is God's light to the nations. This servant will be the one who brings justice to the earth when national Israel did not. This servant will be the one to loose captives and to give sight to the blind when national Israel could not. This servant is the one who will not break a bruised reed and he will be gentle and lowly and he will not snuff out a smoldering wick. So Isaiah gives us this glimpse of a different, a better servant. And Isaiah sees hope. And so he pleads that God would do his work, that he would work through this servant and bring redemption to Israel. So turn over to Isaiah 51, one more passage to set up our text for this morning. Isaiah 51 Verses 9 through 11. Isaiah prays to God and he says in verse 9, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you, O Lord, who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? who made the depths of the sea as a way for the redeemed to pass over. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. In these three verses, Isaiah looks back and he looks forward. First, he looks back. And what is he looking back to? There's several references here to the great deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Isaiah pulls out a couple of different references. The first one is in verse 9. He says, the arm of the Lord. And at various points in the Old Testament, when you see that phrase, arm of the Lord, it can be used for God's mighty work that he did to bring plagues upon Egypt And to show his power to that pagan nation so that they would finally let Israel go. So Isaiah is looking back at that and he's saying, Lord, you worked a great power, a great deliverance by your arm in the Exodus. Wield your arm again. Another reference, again in verse 9, the last part of verse 9, he says, that the Lord is the one who cut Rahab in pieces and who pierced the dragon. Now, if you look at that word Rahab, it looks like what we would typically pronounce as Rahab, the woman who helped Israel conquer Jericho as the nation of Israel was headed into the promised land. I intentionally pronounced it differently because it's actually a different word. This isn't referring to the woman that helped the spies and helped Israel conquer Jericho. This word is actually a description of a sea monster, a dragon, as it says. God is the one who cut Rahab in pieces and who pierced the dragon. What in the world is that talking about? Well, at other parts in the Old Testament, God compares Egypt and Pharaoh to a sea monster or a dragon, 
or a serpent. And you thought dragons were just for fairy tales. No, this is the real deal. God calls Egypt a sea monster or a dragon and he comes and crushes or pierces that enemy in order to draw his people out of their slavery in Egypt. And so God is crushing his enemies to deliver his people. Isaiah says, you did it in the Exodus, do it again. Next reference in verse 10, he says, wasn't it you who dried up the sea? the waters of the great deep who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over. It's a pretty obvious reference to the parting of the Red Sea. God made a way where there was no way. So Isaiah said, you did it before in the Exodus. Do it again. Rescue your people where there seems no way. Last reference, verse 11. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. If you remember when the Israelites stood on the shore of the Red Sea after they had crossed, God caused the waves to crash down on the Egyptians as they were chasing them. And Israel is standing on the shore and watching the carcasses of their enemies wash up onto the sand. And as they see this, they break out in a song of praise to God for his deliverance. Isaiah said, you caused your people to sing before. Cause them to sing again. Bring them out of their sin and their sadness. So he's calling for the Lord and for his servant to act. And the Lord and his servant will act, but they will do so in surprising ways. And now we come to Isaiah 52. And we see that the Lord and his servant will act in surprising ways. First, it doesn't seem like it's that surprising. In verse 13 of chapter 52, where we began our reading this morning, God says, my servant shall act wisely. Well, that's what we would expect from a better servant. This servant will find a way. He has the knowledge of how to rescue Israel when national Israel couldn't even have rescued themselves or anyone else. In verse 13, the second part, it says that this better servant is going to be high and lifted up. He's going to be exalted. That makes sense. Israel was cast out into exile because they failed. If this servant's better, he should get exalted. But then we come to verse 14 of Isaiah 52. And we see that this servant is mutilated. He's marred more than any person has ever been. He's marred beyond human semblance. Now that's surprising. And that would have caught the first hearers and readers off guard because that does not match up with what we think of as a better servant. Why is he being mutilated? Well, we don't know. Let's just keep reading for now. Verse 15, what else is this servant going to do? He's going to sprinkle many nations. You think about the Old Testament sacrifices. What did the priests do when they slaughtered an animal and drained the blood? to offer it as a sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people. They then took some of that blood and they sprinkled it in the presence of the Lord to show that God's people were purified and cleansed by the blood of the sacrifice. So how is this servant going to sprinkle, cleanse many nations? The question is, how does he do it? And how does God wield his mighty arm for his people? We turn to our second thought, that God brings his people out of their sin and sadness through a brutal sacrifice, a brutal sacrifice. God's mighty arm is on display, and yet it's so different from what we would expect. Look at verse 1 of chapter 53. The prophet says, who has believed 
what he has heard from us. It's almost as if Isaiah is saying, we've tried to tell people and they just shake their heads. We've tried to put down the message and people aren't taking it up. It doesn't make sense. This is completely unexpected because when God wields his mighty arm for his people, what do we expect to see? The crushing of his enemies and the deliverance of his people. Here, what do we see when he wields his mighty arm? Well, we see a servant whom no one expects. Verse two of chapter 53. This servant grew up before the Lord like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This servant is unassuming. He's unassuming. He's like a young plant. What's a young plant like? Small, insignificant, slow. You don't expect anything dramatic or climactic from the little plant. I remember in elementary doing this little basic uh, experiment where you had to get a little bean and put it on some cotton balls in a cup and make the cotton balls damp, not too wet, but you had to put the little bean in there and then you put it in a window where it's gonna get sunshine and every day you come back and you look at the, you look at the bean and see if it's sprouted. You come back every day and you look and you look and then one day there's a little green sprout that poked up through the bean and there's a plant. What do you know? Unless you're an elementary kid doing that experiment, we typically don't come back and look at plants moment by moment, day after day. We just expect them to grow. They're slow and they just happen. This servant is like that. He's not anything exciting. He's also like a root out of dry ground. No one expects anything to grow in parched and dead soil. You look somewhere else. You find some fertile ground to see if anything's gonna grow. This servant grows where you don't expect him. So he's unassuming. Second part of verse two, he's unattractive. He has no form or majesty that we should look at him. What does that mean? He's not popular or famous. He didn't land the big sports contract that made a news splash. He wasn't the social media influencer. He doesn't have a platform. He doesn't gather any attention. And he also has no beauty that we should desire him. He's not handsome. Contrary to popular portrayals of who Jesus is or who this servant might be, he's not handsome. He never would have made the front page of People Magazine for the most beautiful person. He's not naturally the one who turns heads. He's unassuming, he's unattractive, he's unwanted. As if the previous descriptions aren't surprising enough, the prophet's next descriptions don't make sense to us even more. He's despised, he's rejected. When people come to know who he is, they turn their backs on him. And he's a man of sorrows. His life is full of grief. We, again, we don't expect this from a better servant, a servant who is supposed to be wielding God's power for the good of his people. And so based on all of these facts, we get to the end of verse three and it says, we esteemed him not. We basically didn't value him as anything. He was invisible to us. We didn't even see him. The servant is a person no one expects. But we continue the surprising information about this servant by coming to the next three verses, verses four through six. The servant suffers. Wait, he suffers? This is unexpected. We're looking for a victorious and successful servant, not a suffering servant. Why does he suffer? He suffers for us. Did you notice in verses four through six, our, we, or us are repeated 10 times in the three verses. 
there's an emphasis on our responsibility. And with the terrible scene to follow, we would be tempted to say what the prophet says in verse four. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. This is so bad. God must be doing something to this person, to this individual, to this servant, because this is awful. And yet we cannot escape the responsibility because he is suffering for our sins. There are multiple terms in these three verses that show us what we are. In verse five, he was wounded for our transgressions, our crimes, our revolt, our defiant rebellion. He was wounded for those. He was crushed for our iniquities, our wickedness, our wrongdoing that leads to guilt, which we cannot escape. He was crushed, struck violent blows for that. And in verse six, we have gone astray. Just like our first parents did in the garden, we have gone our own way rather than follow God. As the builders of the Tower of Babel did, we have sought to erect our own plans and purposes apart from God. All of us, every one of us has gone our own way. And so this servant is wounded, crushed, chastised. And that's a word for a violent beating. Chastised and with his stripes, we are healed. The servant substitutes for us we, because of our transgressions, our iniquities, our going astray, we should be the ones who are crushed, who are wounded, who are pierced because we are the ones who have set ourselves up against God as his enemies, just like Pharaoh and Egypt set themselves against God and he had to crush them and pierce them. So we have set ourselves against God and he, deser- he deserves to crush and to pierce us. But instead, the servant suffers on our behalf. He is crushed. And this would cause us to question everything because you remember in Genesis 3, when the man and the woman sinned and God was preparing to send them out of the garden, he gave them hope. He promised that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent yet again. And so we're expecting the servant to crush the serpent. But here the servant is being crushed. God's plan seems to fail. The servant suffers in our place. And in case we were wondering about his character In verses seven through nine, we see that the servant suffers what he does not deserve. The previous stanza had an emphasis on us and our responsibility. This stanza has an emphasis on him and his innocence. In verse seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. He did not return evil for evil. And he did not even defend himself. He was unresisting. He's equated to a lamb that's being led to the slaughter, a lamb that has no idea what's coming and it innocently and eagerly goes to its own slaughter. And like a lamb that's being sheared, that lies there without resisting, he is led to his own doom. He does not defend himself, even though he's the only person who could legitimately defend himself. He does not do it. And in verses eight and nine, he's completely innocent. Verse eight at the end, he was stricken for 
the transgression of my people, not his own. Verse nine, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Never had his hands done wrong to another person. Never had his mouth spoken untruth. And yet he is led to his death. But there's one more final shock at the end of this brutal scene. In verse 10, the servant suffers according to God's will. Verse 10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The Lord has put him to grief. That is perhaps the most outrageous detail of all. It is God's plan. It is even God's pleasure. It pleased the Lord to crush his chosen servant. Why? Why would God raise up a better servant, a servant who was to be a light to the nations, a servant who was to redeem wayward Israel, a servant who was to bring justice to the whole world, a servant who was to bring those who are in prison out into freedom? Why would God raise up a servant like that and then annihilate him? Because Israel's problem and our problem is so deep And so heinous and so far-reaching that nothing less than this bloody sacrifice would do. Nothing less than this brutal execution could pay for our crimes against the Almighty. Nothing less than this shocking slaughter would satisfy His wrath against our sin. Nothing less would do. And it was only as this chosen servant of God bore the sin of many upon himself, only as he made an offering for the guilt that we have, only as God laid on him the iniquity of us all, could we be brought out of lonely exile and be brought home. This is the unbelievable and upside-down plan of God. The servant suffers because he is the sacrifice for our sins. And we, who sit here in 2021, know far better than even Isaiah knew. We know that God himself became a man and was born as a baby to a teenage girl in a remote village that nobody cared about. We know that child grew up in obscurity and poverty, unknown, unwanted, misunderstood. We know that child was despised and ostracized when he finally came into the public attention. We know that he was finally arrested and falsely accused and inappropriately tried and finally sentenced to execution for nothing that he had done. And we know that he suffered unthinkable agony through the crushing blows and the piercing wounds he received. We know that he died upon a bloody cross flanked by criminals and mocked by onlookers. But we know that more was going on there than, meet, than met the eye of those who saw it. Because when that man on the cross cried out, it is finished, he was saying that he was the servant who had accomplished the mission that God had sent him to do. And we know that that man was Jesus, the servant who came to save his people from their sins. Jesus is the servant of the Lord. He is Israel, the better Israel. He is the light to the nations. He's the one who brings justice to the world. 
He's the one who reaches into the hearts of defiant rebels and transforms us from the inside out. He is the seed of the woman who crushed the serpent even as he was being crushed. And so he's the better servant who brings his people home through his brutal sacrifice. And what's the outcome? What's the result of this horrible sight? We turn to our last point. God brings his people out of their sin and sadness in a beautiful success. A beautiful success. Look down at verse 10, actually, the second part. He shall see his offspring. And then in verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The servant sees. Well, if, if we've been following and paying attention, we know that the servant just died. So how does he see? And here we know better than Isaiah's audience because we know that Jesus the good servant, the better servant, conquered death itself. And so now he sees his offspring. What are offspring? Those that he has created. He's created a new people, a people who will reflect himself, a people who will follow after him, a people who will be like him. And he is satisfied when he sees them. When I was a kid, I listened to a radio program, a radio show. Um, and I actually went online to see if I could find it still. And, and it's, it's on Amazon Music, of all things. It's as a podcast, which is pretty incredible. This is an old radio program about a forest ranger and all of his high thrill escapades and rescues. And the intro to the radio program every week included this, that this ranger does his work all for the satisfaction and pride of a job well done. When you finish something that you've invested in, when you've completed a degree, for example, or gotten that complicated sale, or finished a huge project for school or for work, there's a massive sigh of relief and an immense satisfaction in a job completed. Can you imagine the universe-sized joy and satisfaction of this servant when his job was completed and he sees the people that he has won for himself his offspring, he sees his offspring and he is satisfied. The better servant has accomplished his mission and won his people to himself. So the servant is satisfied. He creates a new people. And in verse 11, he accounts many. He accounts them as righteous. How does he do that? Because he, the perfect one, clothes them, hides them in his righteousness. And he bore their iniquities on himself. And so now all those who should be exiled, which is every one of us, all those who were cast out, all who should be crushed and pierced for our transgressions and our iniquities are now considered righteous and can be brought into the presence of God himself once again. The servant creates a new people and he justifies them. And then he goes between. He has poured out his soul as an offering for sin. He has borne the sin of many as the sacrifice. And now he serves not just as the sacrifice, but as the priest. Because in verse 12, it says he makes intercession, prayers for the transgressors. 
His work was not merely a once for all work. It is an ongoing work. So he sees his offspring and he prays for them because he has covered them in his righteousness. The servant creates a new people. He is satisfied in them and he conquers. Look at the beginning of verse 12. The servant conquers. He has triumphed. God says, I will divide my servant a portion with the many. And he, the servant, shall divide the spoil with the strong. What does that imagery conjure up? A king who's won his war and who's coming home with all his treasures in tow. And what does he do? He doesn't hold them for himself. He spreads them out to all of his people. He shares them. He says, enjoy what I have won for you. The servant triumphs over his enemies. He has conquered the serpent and the dragon and the sea monster, that old devil who has been afflicting our human race from the very beginning until now. He has been crushed and conquered. God's mighty arm was wielded to defeat him. And the servant now shares his spoils with his people, having created a new people. And then, how does he bring them home? Here's our final touch. Look at chapter 54, verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. Jump down to verse 10 of Isaiah 54. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Verse 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. So the better servant creates new servants who are singing his praise and they come home with joy and gladness into the presence of the father because their sin has been forgiven and their sadness is banished forever. This is God's answer to humanity's problem. The servant has healed a deeper problem, defeated a greater foe, and created a better people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wondrous mystery that is your plan. We thank you for sending your son as your servant to accomplish all that you wanted to do to suffer on our behalf, to bear our guilt, to die our death, and then to make us new so that we could be your singing servants. We pray that you would help us to be just that, people who rejoice in what you have done and in who you have made us to be. Thank you for him, for Jesus, and for his work. We pray in his name, amen.